people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Welcome to 12 Rules for What? This is a podcast on fascism, anti-fascism and the far right from the perspective of the left. What you just heard there were sounds recorded at Belmarsh Prison, um, where the first of many, well, at least a few, free Tommy demonstrations took place. I'm joined by the guy who took that audio, James Poulter, who's been on the show before. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me back. No worries. Uh, how was the, um, obviously this is the first demonstration since uh, Tommy Robinson was sent down for uh, contempt of court outside uh, Leeds. Um, how was the demonstration? What was your impression of the crowd? It was a lot smaller than I was expecting it to be. Um, like partly this was because like the short notice. I think uh, they only had about a day or two to, to get people there. Although like Robinson had been telling people to do a protest outside the prison if he got sent down. Um, another reason was the location. It's like his supporters were very worried about going to Belmarsh. Um, it's like it's in a working class area, part of South East London, where there's a high Muslim population. And they were terrified about going. The people were saying on the sort of the group chats, like, don't take your kids, <laughs> like stuff like that. So, yeah, it was quite small. There's about 200 people there. It was, it was very noisy, like they were letting off fireworks, mm-hmm. and like chanting the whole time. But this was a protest sort of practically on an industrial estate. It, it's not not anything like the sort of the mass central London protests that, that happened sort of under the last free Tommy protests, although there is still the possibility that those could happen. Mm-hmm. Weirdly enough, uh, journalist, fellow journalist Ross Kemp uh, turned up to interview one of the two kind of leaders of this new free Tommy movement, Danny Tommer. Um, the other guy in that, in that leadership role is called a guy called Avi Yemeni. Um, could you like, people might not have, um, you know, heard of Danny Tommer before or Avi Yemeni, um, because they're kind of the new kind of Tommy uh, minions, uh, now that Lucy Brown is on the outs. Um, who are they? Where did they come from? Um, so these are two guys that, like Robinson's sort of been preparing for being sent down again, and he's he's basically sort of nominated different members of his team to sort of take on these roles. So Avi Yemeni is this uh, former IDF soldier who's this Australian, like, is Australian-Israeli guy who's got a YouTube channel and is basically trying to do the same kind of, like, anti-Muslim YouTube content that Robinson sort of did so successfully. Um, he's the official spokesperson for the uh, for Robinson while he's in prison, which is proving to be a little bit difficult given the time zone difference. Um, <laughs> he's still he's still reporting being a spokesperson from Australia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, whereas like Danny Tomo is this uh, former kidnapper or failed kidnapper. Um, there's a great article online. Uh, we will link it in the yeah, show description. bungling armed kidnappers jailed for stupid attempt. Um, <laughs> where who is also trying to sort of take on this sort of similar role. He's like basically trying to copy Tommy, but just isn't as effective at it. Um, He is like in charge of organising the street protests. Um, So he's the guy that announced this Belmarsh protest. He's organising the upcoming Free Tommy protest on the 3rd of August in central London. Uh, There's another one on sort of this coming Saturday, 27th of July in Manchester. Um, So he's, he's busy, but... 
not as effective. This is someone who's not really got the experience of organising a street movement. Right. It's like Robinson organised a lot of street protests through the EDL. Mm-hmm. He, he knows how you do it. He knows how to mobilise people. Like Danny Tomo has not got any of that experience. Danny Tomo was the one who um, uh, led the impromptu protest once Robinson was sent down uh, on the Thursday, which ended up with journalists being beaten with their own equipment and uh, police having to pull their buttons and things like that. This, that's an interesting thing as well because he initially was leading it, you watch in the live stream, and then when it gets down to the nitty-gritty outside Parliament, he's the one stepping in and trying to calm the crown down and disperse them. Um, so that's an interesting... I feel like Tommy Robinson in his EDL prime would have just let it let it go and let it run. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Like, I think whenever there were scenes of like the EDL... Are- like attacking the police and that sort of riot in Birmingham, which a number of them were sent down for. I don't think Robinson was involved at all. Although, like, think about it, there is a video of him, like, jumping into a crowd of Islamists mm-hmm. and trying to grab a flag. So it's like, who knows? Who knows? The, the kind of, the key thing that's coming out of this stage of Tommy Robinson's career is, is um, styling himself as some kind of citizen journalist. He's made this trial about freedom of the press and for his freedom of speech being impinged. It's a kind of interesting trend amongst some contemporary far-right activists in, in, in this kind of switch. You see that with Lauren Southern, Lucy Brown, um, people like Andy No, who we talked about a couple of episodes ago. How did this happen? And isn't an effective shield for him? It's like, I think when you're talking about these sort of alt-right and far-right figures, you've, you've got to think about Gamergate, sort of that whole sort of cultural moment when a load of misogynist gamers started harassing women in tech journalism. Because that was the moment that like relaunched the career of like a number of failed journalists like Milo Yiannopoulos. Um, Who was doing pencil reviews for the Telegraph at the time. Well, no, he'd actually uh, oh, yeah. just run a, a tech website into the ground called The Colonel. Um, like Ian Miles Chong also comes out of that sort of Gamergate thing. These were basically just like far-right misogynist reporters who jumped, saw Gamergate as an opportunity to like relaunch their careers. And it sort of blurred the lines between far-right activists and journalists. Like I know you can go all the way back to Mussolini as an example of a far-right activist who was a journalist. Um, but it feels like the kind of characters that we're seeing sort of popular on the internet now, like Sargon of Akkad, like sort of mm-hmm. the, basically like far-right content creators. Mm-hmm. We had a discussion before we started recording and we kind of settled on like the the video that Tommy Robinson did after the Westminster terror attack um, as kind of the pivotal moment in this kind of shift. Um, could you like briefly give some of the context of how that video came to be? So <clears throat> there was a... a couple called um Kaylin Robertson and George Llewellyn John who were running a or tried to start a YouTube channel called The New Brit um where they were basically like going on uh sort of sisters uncut demos and like recording them doing like embarrassing interviews with attendees uh, something that Lauren Southern did with the slot walk stuff yeah well. yeah they, they were basically trying to rip off that whole Lauren Southern style of video for their own YouTube channel and that got them noticed by um, Lauren Southern's employer at the time, Rebel Media. Like Rebel Media is this sort of Canadian hard right YouTube channel set up by uh, this guy called Ezra Levant, who sort of claims to be a lawyer. So Ezra Levant uh, basically hires this couple, um, like Kaylin and George. Like Kaylin's the on-screen character, and George is the editor. And they were living in this sort of fancy flat. Um, in Chelsea, where they were wow. sort of rec- recording all their videos. 
um, for one of the videos that they were making, they interviewed Tommy Robinson. Mm-hmm. And on one of the occasions that Tommy Robinson's round at their flat, the Westminster terror attack happens mm-hmm. when that guy drives a car into a crowd. And then comes out and stabs the copper. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that so that attack. So before anything's been confirmed, like before any details are known, was it Kaylin, George, Tommy Robinson and Jack Buckby, former young BMP member who's current home. rebel employee. Yeah. All jump in a taxi, uh head down from Chelsea to Westminster. Um, and they just start doing this like piece to camera uh, on embankment um, where Caelan comes out with some like horrifically like Islamophobic lines. I think one of the lines he says is, um, if you import a culture, you get a culture. <laughs> Sky News has already reported that the man who did this was of Asian origin, which I don't think is very surprising to anybody. If you import a culture, you get a culture. This is a culture of violence, destruction, and terrorism. And there should be no surprise when we see it on okay. our streets. Um, and then while they're doing this, like a crowd starts building up around them. Um, Kaylin pretends to interview Tommy, and Tommy goes on a rant about how 50,000 um, British Muslims have downloaded the Al Qaeda like, handbook or whatever. And they go on this like horrific rant and it just goes viral. Like I think I, I looked at the number of views it had a couple of years ago and it had like millions of views. Um and and like this is the video that effectively launches Tommy as a journalist or as a far right sort of propagandist pretending to be a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um and it, it brings him to the attention of Ezra Levant because like Ezra has hired Caelan and George a few weeks earlier, mm-hmm. but he hires like Tommy Robinson off the back of that video. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you what do you think that rebels saw in 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 that video? In in and what potential did you do you think they saw in him? I think they realised that he could push the political agenda that they want, like an anti-Muslim sort of hard right agenda, um, and that he would be a good way of like building their brand in the UK. Because uh, they were fairly established in North America at, at this time, or at least among the American hard right. Um, they had like Lauren Southern was like their young star. They had Gavin McInnes, the former vice founder, um, doing a regular show for them. They also had Faith Goldie um, sort of doing stuff on Canadian politics for them. Like so they, they were a big deal in North America, whereas in the UK they were unknown. Like, whereas hiring the former EDL leader to right. be the their UK face, right? Is they very quickly had someone that they could use to grow their presence over here. A pretty canny move, really. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, astute. So at Rebel, uh, Tommy stays there for about a year. Um, what did he get up to in that time? So he basically did the kind of reporting that we've come to associate with him. So he did many of the same kind of. YouTube videos that other rebel personalities had been doing. Um, he would like try and wind up anti-racist activists. He reported on the Marine A case. Uh, he reported on an EDL protest. Um, he confronted a guy who slagged him off on Twitter. Um, he harassed an anti-extremism researcher. Uh, he would harass journalists that wrote things about him. Like he was very much like this. This wasn't reporting. It was more sort of the Tommy Robinson show where he is the central character mm-hmm. in this war against the establishment. More jackass than Panorama. Oh yeah, definitely. Like one of the things that really worked for him was him turning up outside uh, grooming gang trials and like berating the defendant. And the first example of this is 
outside Huddersfield Magistrates Court in 2017? Yes, this is April 2017. Um, this is the first of the three link trials that he eventually disrupted the second one. And yeah, th- this was referenced in the judgment given by the uh, High Court recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, we can listen to that now. There's 28 men on starting trial for raping young kids. Your community are doing it. You scum. Look at you. Look at you. Come out, I'm passing kids around. We're done. I've got passing you. Kids around. Passing kids around to Muslim men. Stop raping, raping kids. Look at you. You're not kids. Court for this morning, mate. What are you in court for? And then, yeah, the second time he does this is a couple of weeks later in Oxford. Um, and he gets 2.1 million views. Which is, you know, uh, an astonishing amount to, for a YouTube video. Yeah, so you, you can see why he kept doing this because this this fitted with his personal brand like he he's tried to invent himself as uh someone who has like made people aware of the existence of muslim grooming gangs even though this is something that the mainstream media have reported on extensively there've been a number of like people that have actually done things to bring this to people's attention whereas mm-hmm. all he's done is push a racist like anti-muslim agenda for years mm-hmm. um but it, this fitted with what he was trying to do like, of course it's it's important to remember as well that this was pre-YouTube making any effort to crack down extremist content on his platform. So he probably had Google AdSense on those videos and was making a fair whack of, of money off it as well. Yeah, it was, while he was doing this, he was also being paid um, by Rebel Media and by a guy called um, Robert Shillman, who's this like wealthy US industrialist that gives money to people that hate Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he was making a lot of money out of doing this. Like He was very successful for Rebel. He was producing some of their most popular videos at the time. Right. Um, So after Oxford, a couple of weeks later, uh, Tommy goes to Canterbury Crown Court, where he ends up um, getting arrested. So the Canterbury and the Oxford um, uh, things, they happen very close together. Oh, yeah. This whole thing, like him getting arrested in Canterbury is less than a month after him first doing this. Yeah, he appears at three trials of alleged Muslim grooming gangs. Um, within a month. Uh, the video that he recorded at Canterbury was called Tommy Robinson in Canterbury Exposing Muslim Child Rapists. Please help them escape. <laughs> and what had basically happened was he turned up outside the court, tried to film the defendants in the trial, and then gone into the court still trying to film them. Into the, the courtroom? Uh, not into the courtroom, but into the court building. Right. And like anybody who has aware of what you do when around courts knows you, you're not allowed to do stuff with a camera. Right. It's very, very obvious wherever you look in a courtroom, the signs are everywhere. Yeah. So he ends up getting uh, a three-month suspended sentence for this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, interestingly, at the time, like he's arrested on the 10th of May. Um, Rebel Media organised a Save Tommy campaign. Right. And like, in many ways, this is a prelude to the sort of the Free Tommy campaign that we saw last summer. So it's 4 a.m. Your wife and your kids are asleep upstairs. The police barge into your house. What could you possibly have done wrong? Have you committed terrorism, violent theft, robbery? How about filming outside a courthouse? Because that's exactly what Tommy Robinson did yesterday. The police don't realize how powerful all of this can be when we come together and fight for justice. Now, whether you're on the left or the right, whether you agree or disagree with Tommy. If you care about free speech, freedom of press, and the fundamentals of human rights and justice, then please share this video. And if you have one dollar or one pound or anything to spare, 
Um, they released a video called Save Tommy Robinson, Arrested Reporting the News. And they basically tried to portray him uh, turning up outside an ongoing trial and like making a song and dance about what the trial's about as an example of reporting. It's not like if you're reporting on a trial, you will be at the preliminary hearings, you'll follow it as it develops and you'll reveal everything at the end. Like, Or you'll, you'll, you can report... Depending on the reporting restrictions, you might report on it as it develops, or you might release everything when it's finished. And setting it in its proper context. Yeah, exactly. Whereas what Robinson was doing was just turning up on one day and then recording a video outside as if he's reporting on it. And of course, he's made a big deal about uh, part of this contempt is causing anxiety to the defendants. Um, but the the point in the video is not an informational. It's not reporting. It's to stir up racial hatred ultimately and yeah yeah it's, it's basically sophisticated far-right propaganda right and we see this save tommy blueprint being applied very successfully in the free tommy movement that happened and now starting up again in 2019 i mean the amount of money that rebel must have made off these various campaigns must be astronomical yeah definitely um and it's like interestingly it's the day that he's convicted and given the three-month uh custodial sentence suspended for 18 months is also the day of the manchester arena bombing uh which killed 22 people by the 23rd of may robinson's in manchester is where he gives that uh does that video where he refers to people living in manchester as being enemy combatants mm -hmm. this fits into a pattern that there's some kind of major public event to do with muslims uh, Muslim people, and he is immediately in the area making videos um, exploiting the issue. And we also see this with the, the case of, quite horrifically this time, the case of the bullied uh, uh, boy at Huddersfield School, Jamal, who had his arm broken, water poured in his face, and an absolutely horrifying, you know, incident of racial bullying and Tommy's there very soon after interviewing the bully saying the bully's been victimized it's horrific it's really horrific yeah, he's, he's basically looking for events that he can portray in a way that reinforces the worldview of his supporters which is one where Muslims are a threat to their way of life and and any incident that he can find that will like support that he, he will go and make a video about it's not reporting it's incitement that's the difference. So during Tommy's time at, at Rebel Media, um, the Charlottesville protests happened, Unite the Right One, organised by a coalition of white supremacists and other alt-right and light groups, including the Proud Boys, Traditional Workers Party, all these kind of um, uh, groups on the American far right. Um, what effect did Charlottesville and, and the death of Heather Heyer have on Rebel Media and Rebel Media personalities? And what did Tommy do uh, in this time? Well, so Charlottesville had a massive impact on Rebel Media and it, what happened to Rebel was widely reported um, in the Canadian media as the Rebel Media Meltdown. We will link this in the show description as well. Um, this was par like partly uh, Caelan and George, uh, who had been working with Tommy Robinson sort of since uh, the Westminster attack. Um, they released a video accusing Ezra Levant of some kind of irregularities. Essentially, they're leaving video. Yeah, yeah, which you can find on YouTube as Why I Left the Rebel Media. Uh, Faith Goldie is sacked from Rebel Media for appearing on a neo-Nazi podcast. Faith Goldie, another rebel personality. Um, Gavin McInnes, who is like probably their biggest star, um, announces that he's going to be leaving the channel. Although this, I think, he'd been poached by a rival channel. Right. But they, they basically lost two major uh, contributors. 
uh, and the two minor British ones, and then Robinson sticks with them. Why? Why? Why do you think he did this? What? What did he have some kind of loyal, loyalty to Ed Levant, or what was going on? I think he probably had a financial motivation. <laughs> right. um, I imagine he, he's making a fair bit of money out of Rebel at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not quite. I I think it was partly it was a good gig for him. It's right. like why why would you just give that up straight away? Mm-hmm. Especially when he's only just got on it, really. But Tommy did end up quitting Rebel um, and going independent. Um, how did this come about and um, what kind of effect did that have on his content? So this happened in February 2018, so six months later. And this is shortly after um, Rebel have hired Katie Hopkins, right. who is a bigger figure in the UK than Tommy Robinson was. So like, just to explain to our uh, the, the few non-UK listeners we have, uh, Katie Hopkins... Uh, well, I mean, she now regularly gets tweet- retweeted by Donald Trump, uh, but she was a, uh, a contestant on our version of The Apprentice, had a column in The Sun in which she called Migrants Cockroaches, and she got a lot of attention off that and started her on a, a racist turn, which has deepened. She now does uh, videos about the white genocide in, of white farmers in, uh, in South Africa, which is a lot of bullshit and uh, other stuff like that. Yeah, I interviewed her once. And what was she like? She was quite friendly. Okay. Yeah. I mean, but was she... Oh, yeah. She said, like, loads of incendiary racist stuff. Um, and do you think that Katie Hopkins took away... Uh, was was part of the funding that went to Tommy was now going to Katie Hopkins? Yeah, I, it wouldn't surprise me if that had happened, but I, I don't know enough about it to sort of say that definitively. But she, she definitely became the, the key figure for uh, Rebel Media in the UK. Um, she also, I think, got... That that documentary where she went out to South Africa, I think that was meant to be Lauren Southern, right? Who was going? So she like took a load of like projects, money off existing contributors, and and she was like a star in comparison. Like she was she was sort of a major figure. And she had a, at the time she had a, a radio show on LBC. Still probably had the column in the Sun. I can't remember when she lost that. No, she she lost the all of her mainstream right, and that's thing. why she ended up as a rebel. Yeah, so it it made sense for her. It's like she's drifting towards the far right. They want a bigger figure to do it, and and this sort of coincides with Tommy de- drifting towards the far, further to the far right himself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like Ezra Levant is not someone that you would call like a neo-Nazi by any like he's no. a Jewish guy. He's uh, a big supporter of Israel. He's like made it clear that like rebel wouldn't associate openly with neo-Nazis. Like Faith Goldie getting sacked is an example of that. So it looked like in some respects that he's holding Robinson back and stopping him from developing like more far right views. Because like, while, while he's with Rebel, um, he meets AFD, he meets Pegida mm-hmm. um, people, but he doesn't really go any further than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the first videos he does as an independent journalist with his own YouTube channel uh, is about the 120 decibels uh, generation identity front where they try to sort of rip off the Me Too campaign. Right. Um, and this feels like, yeah, he's he's starting to report on more openly far right things. And in this time, he's getting he gets quite close to um, the leader of Generation Identity, Martin Selner, and his fiance, um, Brittany Pettibone, as well. Yeah. So on the 9th of March, twenty eighteen, um, Brittany Pettibone and Martin Selner are detained at Luton Airport and denied entry to the UK. Um, on the 11th of March, uh, Tommy Robinson is in Vienna interviewing them. Um, the following weekend, um, Robinson gave the speech that Selner was due to give uh, at Speaker's Corner. And this this sort of is midway through a sort of running 
there's there's a couple of months where there's a struggle around nominally around free speech where the far right a number of like far right groups coming together it's like i, I was at some of these um sort of protests at speaker's corner mm-hmm. me too and uh yeah you, you saw like ukip figures because uh, like selner had been due to speak at a ukip a young yeah, young independence yeah a U- ukip youth event um uh, yeah so there's this like coalition starting to form of ukip generation identity dfla and robinson is like the figure that holds this all together and you can see the the, the power that he kind of like the influence he wielded in in the, in the two speakers corners demos that happened a week apart first one just after Selner's banned from the UK, is organised solely by the tiny Generation Identity UK branch. Um, and they get about 40, 40 people, Cranks, um, Vinnie Sullivan, for example. Um, the next week, Tommy comes and there's a thousand, uh, thousand people at Speaker's Corner. And that sudden escalation is, is, is solely down to his celebrity and the kind of career he's built. Well, um, it's, it's also down to his social media platforms. Right. It's like if, if he hadn't had the Facebook page that had like a million odd followers at that point, uh, there's no way that he would have been able to get those kind of numbers out. And I don't know the analytics, how, how Facebook like, you know, works in who sees what, but... Uh, you know, a million as the, as the core amount of likes. The, 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 these things are regularly get, you know, tens of thousands of shares and all, all those people's friends will see that as well. So this had a huge impact in in this kind of sphere. And then it's also like this whole issue of like far-right spe- free speech around Selner um, being banned from the UK was something that Robinson's making videos about. Like he's talking about this, this topic. This becomes the sort of the main thing that parts of the British far right are talking about for about a month or so. Mm-hmm. So a week after the demonstration at Speaker's Corner where Robinson read out Martin Selner's speech, um, there's a FLA and DFLA protest in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Um, Robinson turned up at both of those and is treated as a hero. He like mm-hmm. live streams the whole thing. He's being mobbed by kids, like wanting to take photos with him as he's walking around. And interestingly, it's at the DFLA event where he meets Gerard Batten, the UKIP leader. Because mm-hmm. um, yeah, very weirdly, it's like uh, Anne-Marie Waters' For Britain party was supporting the FLA. Right. And Generation Identity were also with the FLA. Uh, but the DFLA, who are on the other side of Birmingham, uh, had a load of like serious UKIP people there it's like weirdly I bumped into a UKIP MEP that I'd uh, met at the UKIP conference like the year before sort of at this DFLA rally like I was just like what are you doing at this far right event and he's like oh this isn't far right these are great people and I walk around the corner and I see a guy that's got a tattoo of Hitler on his chest (laughs) Jesus Christ um and so we're kind of building up a picture of this coalition that's coming together around Tommy Robinson. It's Generation Identity, uh, UKIP, DFLA. Um, how vital is Tommy, Tommy Robinson in bringing these these kind of oh, pr- pretty disparate groups together? I mean, we see Generation Identity as these like student-focused university um, scale group, and then DFLA is like the at least visually working class um, successor to the EDL, and then UKIP, which is, you know, uh, a parliamentary party uh, which has contested elections since the since the 90s how did this happen well so it's like ukip have gone into decline like after this point like nigel farage has like largely left the party henry bolton mm. had like done a terrible job as, uh, as leader as well, yeah. 
Yeah, well, so it's interesting that Paul Nuttall actually took UKIP down a very Islamophobic line mm-hmm. and their share of the vote dropped as a result. Right. It's like it, it didn't work. because It's because like anti-Muslim feeling isn't an effective vote winner in the UK. It's like racism and concerns about immigration are far more effective right. ways of like, yeah, getting votes out of people's reactionary views uh, than sort of pushing this like, yeah, anti-Muslim attitude. So it's like UKIP have tried this. That yeah, Anne Marie Waters' campaign within UKIP has a, a big impact on the party. Uh, like even though she, she like lost, but there were people like senior party members calling for her to be given a, a like a place in not their shadow cabinet, but in their leadership sort mm-hmm. of team. And and a lot of um, her supporters joined UKIP as well to vote for her. So I think Robinson's really the glue that holds together this coalition. Um, it's like without him, it doesn't really exist. Like he's, in some respects, he's a leader, um, but he's also, he's the person who's regularly producing content. He's interviewing a lot of the figures. It's, it's kind of like, he's not got any sort of proper authority, as mm-hmm. in he's not organising things or running things, but he is the centre of attention. It's more the catalyst than the, uh, you know. Yeah, and it's, He's holding together sort of different bits of different things. So it's like you've got Generation Identity seeing this whole movement as an opportunity to grow and establish themselves in the UK. You've got UKIP going into decline and like trying to appeal to like, well, it's mainly the sort of social media platforms that Robinson's got. It's um, there's this young kid from uh, the UKIP youth group that wrote this article sort of arguing that Robinson should be allowed to join the party because he's got a million uh, Facebook followers. Mm hmm. It's like, and you later saw this with Paul Joseph Watson and uh, Count Dankler and Sargon of Akkad joining UKIP. Mm-hmm. It's like U- UKIP were basically saw these like alt-right YouTubers and were like, oh, we can use this to sort of get our message out. Right. Um, and how concerning was this like forming coalition to anti-fascists at the time? And do you think they have any reason to be concerned by it now? Is it, has it, has it kind of uh, burnt out or is it, is it a sustainable thing? I think at the time it was very concerning for anti-fascists, like especially the ones I was speaking to, um, because you had the prospect of this turning into a sort of the same kind of setup that you have in Europe, where you've got populist parties or you've got like hard right fascist sort of semi-fascist parties like um, the Front National in France, uh, now National Rally. Um, the AFD in Germany, uh, Liga in Italy. There are strong links between um, National Rally in France and Generation Identity there, where like leading organisers in Generation Identity were working as like parliamentary assistants for National Rally uh, representatives. It's the same kind of setup in Germany, where mm-hmm. AFD um, sort of parliamentarians are taking identitaire bewegungs, like identitarian movement um, organisers, into parliament with them and like employing them on sort of parliamentary wages. So Generation Identity is basically operating as an unofficial youth movement for these hard right parties. Right, and it, and there was a concern among people at the time that. UKIP could become this. This is the kind of party that UKIP was trying to become. Mm-hmm. Um, so even when Anne Marie Waters like lost the campaign, they still that conference was still addressed by an AFD uh, speaker who right. sort of got a standing ovation. Um, they, they've seen the success of these um, anti-Muslim hard right parties in Europe, and they want to mirror that success mm-hmm. in the UK. Mm-hmm. So while you've got that kind of thing happening between UKIP and Generation Identity. The sort of this rise of the DFLA is uh, 
sort of what looked like it could could turn into a fascist street movement. Like I don't think the DFLA are fascist, and I recently sort of chatted to them about whether they would deny being far right. Um, but there was definitely a concern that they could sort of be the street movement for this political movement. Do you think the DFLA are far right? I think they've got some far right sort of positions, and there's definitely some far right types involved in it, but. They like kicked the national front out, like leader out of a pub the other day. Um, I think it's like more complicated. Mm, complicated. No, no. I, I, I think it's an interesting thing. It's like are the DFLA far right? It's like they're. I think what they argue for is structural racism. Mm-hmm. Like they're not racist towards people on an individual level. Well, some of the member members definitely are. I feel. Well, yeah. Like I went, I went on a DFLA march and they had the Pine Mash Squad there, including that guy with a like Hitler tattoo on his chest. Right. But I went on the DFLA march after that and I saw the Pine Mash Squad being kicked off the protest by DFLA stewards. Mm-hmm. It's like they've certainly put a lot of effort into keeping neo Nazis and white nationalists away from their events. And so they may be like generally Islamophobic and generally structurally racist, but there there's some line that they are policing actively. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think I if I had to describe them, I'd feel more comfortable describing them as hard right than far right. Okay. But I know that they're both very sort of vague terms. Right. Yeah, I, I, I personally I don't see much difference between the two really. This coalition that we've been talking about, from my from my viewpoint, it hasn't really held together pretty well, very well. And I feel like it, it has fallen apart. And I feel like this Free Tommy um, movement is, is not going to be as effective as bringing them back together. And I, I wondered what you thought about that. Is it is there a possibility of it being stitched together and why did it fall apart? I'm not... I'm not sure it's completely fallen apart yet. Um, I think like UKIP's going through, like Batten sort of stepped down as UKIP leader. It's like UKIP basically did this whole gamble about whether like tacking to the alt-right would work for them as a party and it failed abysmally. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like going through a period of reflection where they may no longer be following that path. So that's that sort of happened independently of this whole sort of Tommy Robinson thing. Right. Like generation identity have never really got off the ground, uh, as we talked about on a previous episode. And as uh, the leader of generation identity, Benjamin Jones, noticed um, in, when he commented on our episode, I, thank you very much for listening, Ben. It's really appreciated. You're still irrelevant. Uh, and then the DFLA have also struggled. So they went on this soldier protest the other day um and they only took about 100 people with them a year ago they were getting thousands of people onto the streets um they've organized like sizable protests but their numbers just haven't held up i think they could potentially grow again but i mean this is also a pattern we've seen with the edl as well they had some huge demonstrations when they started and it there was a very i mean it took a lot of years with the edl but eventually it started tailing off and the uh, attendance dwindled especially after Tommy left and now we're down to a level where the EDL have got you know 20 people in a car park yeah I, I think the EDL sort of stuck yeah it stuck around a lot longer than the DFLA did mm-hmm. um, but that's because it had a clearer thing about what it's trying to do it's like the DFLA are against all forms of extremism right uh, which is like government policy it's like I, I think at the time the EDL was basically a pressure group for government policy right it's like britain was already locking up jihadis we're already bombing muslim countries it's like what they were arguing for wasn't a break from what the government was doing at the time and the dfla are the same but they weren't i think by not pushing the sort of hardline anti-muslim message 
that Robinson did. It's difficult for the DFLA to fill the space that the EDL once did. But mm-hmm. it's also like, what, you've had 35,000 people apparently go on EDL demos at right. some point. How many of those people are going to think that it's worth repeating that? Right. It's like, because politically, what did you get from it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so what happens after Tommy meets uh, Gary Batten? Within days, uh, Robinson loses his Twitter account. And he, he had over 400,000 followers at the time. He was like a prolific user of the platform. He was using it to like build sort of protests that he was organising. Periscope videos, this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, uh, Selner gets um, denied entry to the UK again. Um, this this narrative that the far right is being cracked down on, that they can't exercise their freedom of speech, it really starts to sort of pick up a bit of weight. And how did Tommy respond to losing his Twitter account? Uh, so Tommy organises this event called the Day for Freedom. And this is basically like one of the largest far right protests held in the UK since the days of Oswald mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got people like, I think Raheem Kassam was comparing it. Right, uh, so the former editor of Breitbart UK. Yeah, and former advisor to Nigel Farage. Right, yeah. Milo Yiannopoulos is speaking. Yeah, Gerard Batten speaking. Gerard Batten spoke. Um, they flew in the, the port, uh, a congressman from America. Yeah, Gavin McInnes spoke. Gavin McInnes spoke. There was just a, a parade of celebrities on the alt-right. Yeah, yeah, it's like hard, hard right, far right celebrity types. But so this is also like, I think the, the pre-Tommy going to jail peak of this movement. Right. Um, so this this was meant to be a march on Twitter's headquarters in Soho, right? Uh, but the police moved it to a static protest on Whitehall, mm-hmm. presumably because of concerns about anti-fascists blocking the route of the march, right? Um, Soho famously having very narrow streets. So a month um, after the Day for Freedom, this is when we come to the kind of pivotal uh, moment in in Tommy's later career, um, when he was arrested outside Leeds Crown Court for live streaming and filming defendants as they uh, went into court uh, just after, just before they were going to hear the verdict, so while the jury was deliberating. Could you say a little bit about that? In, in 2017, uh, 29 individuals were charged with involvement in the sexual exploitation of young women and girls in the Huddersfield area. They had uh, a hearing at Huddersfield Magistrates Court on the 12th of April. This is the first time that uh, Robinson turns up outside of court to get content. Um, that trial of 29 people was split into three trials. Mm-hmm. Um, this is purely on the logistical ground. You can't fit that many people inside a courtroom. It's not feasible to have that many lawyers all at the same time, all representing different clients. It's a standard practice within 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 the court system in the UK. Yeah, and we, we also have these, it's sort of very different from America where they have, um, you can film inside courtrooms and you can like live stream the like what's happening there we have like quite tight reporting restrictions that are sort of put in place to the idea being that if you stop juries finding out about things um that might make them sort of change their opinion you can ensure that sort of justice is being delivered mm-hmm. um and what happened was the, these trials uh, this trial of 29 individuals was split into three at some point during the the trial reporting restrictions are put in place which mean that no reporting can be done on the trial until all three of the interlinked trials have been completed mm-hmm. which they now have mm-hmm. um which is hence why we can do this episode right now yeah yeah although people were able to talk about 
Robinson's trial, involvement in disrupting this trial right. before it had actually concluded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was on 19th of March 2018 that the reporting restrictions were put in place by HSJ Marson QC. Who was the guy who then, who was the judge who then sent Tommy down the in the contempt? Yeah, so it's on the morning of the 25th of May uh, at 8.32am, uh, Robinson turns up outside court with Caitlin Robertson and George Llewellyn John, who we now know were working for Hope Not Hate at this point. Um, and he starts a live, uh, yeah, he starts a live stream where he basically harasses like Muslim men turning up at, at the court. Like two of them were the defendants in the trial. Right. One of the people that he harassed wasn't even a defendant in the trial. But <sighs> yeah, it's just, it's absolutely mad that he thought that this was something he could get away with. It's like, did he actually think he could get away with it? We mentioned that he had got the suspended sentence at the Canterbury at the Canterbury trial, which is one of the three interlinked trials. Is there any indication that Robinson knew that um, doing the same thing at Leeds um, at the second trial would have any effect on, would, would, would involve him being arrested? He would get a custodial sentence. All right, so this is reading from the judgment um, made at Canterbury. Uh, the judge said to Robinson and this is all quoted, in short, Mr. Yaxley Lennon, turn up at another court, refer to people as Muslim paedophiles, Muslim rapists, and so on and so forth, while trials are ongoing and before there has been a finding by a jury that that is what they are, and you will find yourself inside. Do you understand? Thank you very much. That's pretty unambiguous uh, message to Tommy Robinson right there. Yeah, so Rebel Media actually paid for him to do a media law course. Um <laughs> Which is which is what he used in his in his defence for the the recent hearing. Yeah, so he seems to have made some effort to try and learn about reporting restrictions, but it show like what he ended up doing at Leeds, where he nearly disrupted this trial. Like shows, uh, yeah, they, obviously he didn't pick a lot up. There is an interesting question here: is whether he picked it up and what he, whether he was actually actively trying to follow these restrictions or whether he was looking for another arrest in order to uh, fundraise, get more attention. Um, the judge in this case very un- uh, explicitly says to him, if you do this again, uh, you will be arrested and sent to prison. And he did it again. It's a, it's a, however much he can claim to be following these reporting restrictions, it just seems so empty, this disclaim. Yeah, and he's made a lot of money out of going to prison for this. Uh, like, he bought a very expensive house um, shortly after being released from prison. He got masses of donations from the US. Um, I mean, breaking in hundreds of thousands of pounds. Yeah, we know he got at least $20,000 uh, in Bitcoin. And and Caelan Robinson said that at one point his Stripe account, which is a payment processing platform, had at least £2 million uh, in, in it. Um, and yeah, Milo Yiannopoulos is also claiming that um, Caitlin Robertson and George used the Bitcoin money that uh, Tommy Robinson was donated to entertain the Hope Not Hate team at the Dorchester. Respect. While Robinson was in pr- in prison. <laughs> Which is utterly delicious, really. Uh, if it's true, because we shouldn't treat anything that Milo Yiannopoulos is. Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Robinson starts live streaming at 8.32am. He claims that he'd asked uh, one of the security guards if there were reporting restrictions in place before this. Um, the judges at the High Court didn't believe that. Well, I mean, more importantly, the security guard gave evidence in the hearing at the, at the High Court and said he told Robert, Ro- Robinson he didn't know and to go and ask the, the actual law clerks who would know. Yeah, yeah. He said go to the Crown Office and check. Which Tommy did not do. Yeah. 
uh, and he didn't contest that in court either. Uh, so yeah, he starts uh, streaming live streaming at eight thirty two a.m. Uh, it's important to point out the courts open at eight thirty a.m. Um, so he would have had very little time to get through security, go and try and check on these reporting restrictions before going out and starting the live stream. In fact, it would be almost impossible with the way court security is, especially in a high court. So by about 8.45am, um, there are about 3,600 people watching the, this stream live on Facebook. Uh, and that number goes up. And by about 9.30am, there are 10,000 viewers. <sighs> So this is like someone breaching um, reporting restrictions on a really serious trial on Facebook Live with a massive audience. Um, it's like this isn't like a local newspaper putting an article up that no one reads mm -hmm. and like taking it down quickly. This is someone like going all out in breaking these restrictions. And this is one of the reasons why the sort of courts have taken this so seriously. Um, yeah, he gets arrested at around 9.45 and is in front of the judge by about 10 a.m., he deleted the video from Facebook, but of course people copied it. Because he gets jailed around this thing, it goes viral. Robinson gets jailed uh, for 10 months by the judge, mm -hmm. uh, who deals with him in sort of a summary way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this makes the video go viral. One of the uh, lawyers for one of the defendants told the court that um, by about 10.50am, 250,000 people had seen the video. Um, on the next sitting day... So this is four days later. The lawyers told the court that there had been 3.5 million views of the video. And, mo and, 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 and key to this is that the lawyers for the defendants tried to use this live stream and use this video and use the amount of people who saw it to get the, the case thrown out and say it was going to be a bad trial. Yeah, they very nearly did. Um, there, was even, there was an EDL protest outside the trial on one of the days which led to one of the defendants not turning up. So, yeah, so multiple lawyers tried to get the case thrown out and yeah, he very nearly collapsed this trial into a Muslim grooming gang because he wanted YouTube views. And this is this is the key point if you're going to take anything away from this podcast. And if any of you listening are fans of Tommy, uh, Tommy Robinson was not protecting uh, children, the children of Huddersfield or the UK. He was actively endangering uh, the convictions of, of child abusers um, for his own personal gain. And that is horrendous. And you shouldn't believe what he says. So, Day for Freedom in April was one of the biggest far-right gatherings um, since the since the 30s, since Oswald Mosley. Tommy Robinson's yelling and arrest set this kind of nascent movement ablaze. And it's, it culminated um, in the uh, a demonstration, a free Tommy, the first free Tommy demonstration in June, uh, which attracted thousands of people to the streets of central London um, and resulted in... Um, uh, mass violence there's, there's no really other word really word for it yeah i think this is one of the first far-right rallies in the uk for about three four years um like people were saying there are about fifteen thousand people on this protest and yeah there, there's footage on youtube of uh robinson supporters chanting we want tommy out while throwing projectiles at police like a number of police officers were injured a number of people were arrested at the time and there's basically barely any... Was there even a counter-protest to this? There was maybe 100 to 200, um, a combination of stand-up to racism, usuals and AFN. Um, incredibly pure showing from anti-fascists. 
Um, so this this was something that the left hadn't really been taking seriously. It's like all throughout this like far right free speech struggle that sort of sparks by generation identity. It's something that the the left weren't really mobilizing over. And it was allowed to build as well. It was allowed to grow and expand and snowball until you had this Tinder uh, Tinderbox situation, and suddenly the left found itself um, for the first time in a very long time completely and utterly outnumbered on the streets and although I wasn't at the demonstration I, I knew people who uh, the anti-fascist counter mobilization if you call it that um you, you had a very loose police line fascists could walk right through into the demonstration a very close one thing that no one got punched or attacked um it came very close the Chelsea headhunter kind of crowd of people were spent most of their day hanging around the side of that demonstration trying to have a pop um this, you know, this is um, kind of where we ended up in 2018. Yeah, I, I wasn't at the uh, first free Tommy Wong, so I wasn't in the UK. Um, but I, I was there for the second one. Um, and it was... And this happened in July, um, a, a day after the huge um, Stop Donald Trump protest that the left organised in central London. Yeah, so this was one with the, there was a much larger like anti-fascist mobilization, um, but still like not on the scale of the far right, um, and and the far right demo sort of had this sort of same feeling that the Day for Freedom had had, where it's like people were attending this internationally, um, like people were flying in from Europe to take part in this, mm -hmm. um, but it was also it was this coalition of like sort of more middle class than the EDL of like UKIP types, generation identity types, as well as like the sort of Robinson hardcore fans. Um, and yeah, that you don't get the rioting in this that you ha that had at the previous one, but it is just as violent. And we saw this in the, you know, coordinated attack on an, on, on a pub in which RMT members and, and leaders were drinking in at the time, visibly with an RMT flag up, um, with glasses were thrown. Um, it was, yeah. It was a, a pretty kind of like organised piece of uh, political violence against the left. Yeah, so what it looked like had happened with that was that the pre this, this Free Tommy movement had led to groups of neo-Nazis that hadn't been out on the streets for sort of decades and any People numbers. like Combat 18, for example. Yeah, yeah. So um, there was like leading former Combat 18 key figures were spotted in pubs near where the RMT were attacked. Um, the group that attacked the RMT are sort of believed to be like neo-Nazi football hooligans. Um, and it, these are people that are being dragged onto the streets by these large far-right protests. It's like they see this as a space that they can organise in and that they can operate in. And it's like if you want to be sort of violent towards the left, having the cover of a 10,000 strong far-right protest is like a very effective way of getting away with it. Right. And here's a, here's a danger to in these free Tommy protests, isn't it? It creates the space, it creates the, the safety for mass demo in which these groups can rear their heads again and come come back out of the woodwork yeah well that, that this is what generation identity are trying to do like they're, they're trying to use those spaces to build an organization right so due to the uh the the summary way in which the the leads uh highcock judge uh, dealt with to tommy robinson and and sent him down so quickly um uh he had grants to appeal and in which he did and the appeals court found that Although the, the kind of fundamentals of the contempt case was sound, the way it was dealt with, the, the how fast the, uh, the the kind of hearing, the contempt hearing took place, meant that was grounds for 
for a successful appeal and he was released from prison on that basis. And the, the case was then referred to the Attorney General, who's the highest kind of law official in the country, um, for, for like a decision about whether to carry on with it. So two things happened to him in February 2019. He gets... Um, he announces that he's going to stand as an MEP. So three big things yeah. happened to him. <laughs> <laughs> so three big things happened to Tom Robinson in 2019. He announces he's going to run in the uh, upcoming uh, European elections, which is building on his Brexit betrayal um, demonstration that he organised with UKIP. He uh, releases uh, a documentary called called Panodrama, exposing... Uh, uh, the Panorama program where he's doing an investigation on him, um, which gets millions of views. We released our first episode on him just as that was kicking, that was taking off. Um, at the time, we said he, he was on 200,000 something. And finally, his, uh, his Facebook page joins his Twitter account in the depths of oblivion and he also gets deleted as well. Yeah. And, and these are, you know, three kind of maker things in in Tommy's career and they had very big a very big impact on on the coming months as well yeah also on the 1st of May he has a milkshake thrown at him and then on the 2nd of May he has a milkshake thrown at him so this is during the uh, election uh, during the European elections yeah he starts the international trend that goes from Tommy Robinson getting hit with a milkshake all the way through to Andy No having cement filled milkshakes dude fake out. news you're meant to be a real journalist yeah. what's going on right now yeah there was i saw an absolutely brilliant bit of content where um some portland news website had made milkshakes that they put quick drying cement in and then thrown them at a mannequin <laughs> to see what it would look like but yeah like robinson only got uh under nine thousand votes uh, it's 2.2 percent uh lost his deposit and he's back on trial at the old bailey by the 4th of july and the re- the reason for that i feel i feel is it it's like one of the, it's a matter of scale of support. He has a, a you know if you look at like the like the raw number of people who would like generally support him, it's quite it's really very high. But these people are spread across you know the globe. There are big presence in Australia and Canada, North America. His re- rebel gave him that kind of platform, and in the UK. But two um, percent across the country is not enough to win you election win an election in a particular constituency, even one as large as like the northwest of it, of England. And this is this is exposed the real like kind of um, lack of depth in his support. Uh, it, it's large, but it's, it's it's thinly spread. Yeah, I think like one thing that people ought to be aware of is like the northwest was where Nick Griffin sort of became an MEP. Mm-hmm. But what's different? One of the differences between Griffin and Robinson is that the BNP had a community organization or like the branch ward level organization in in this region and and Robinson's not got that he had a YouTube channel he's got a YouTube channel he had a Facebook page and a Twitter account like that's not the same as having a group of people that are your neighbors that will go around like talking about how dog shit is a problem um so he he's just never going to pose an electoral threat in the way that the BNP once did. And this gets to our what we talked about in our last episode about him, in which we talked about um, Robinson as having an audience rather than like a party or a movement, really, even. Um, and it's very kind of um, uh, him as a content producer and his audience as con- content consumers. Um, and this is the real weakness in his kind of political organising right now. 
Yeah, and it's, it's like, I wonder, like, how much longer will he be around for? And I, I don't mean that in the sense that he's going to get knocked off by, like, the secret state or any of the mad shit that his supporters come out with. But, like, how long will he keep up producing anti-Muslim content for? It's like, surely he's going to get bored of it at some point. And it's it's keep well, it's taking a toll on him in the sense that he keeps getting sent to prison. Um, like, he's obviously doing quite well with the money, but... He just doesn't strike me as someone that will still be doing this kind of thing in a decade. And Nick Griffin, although he's in obscurity, uh, you know, he's still angling and he's still thinking very thoroughly about the far right and fascism and how to advance um, the movement. Um, and he's going to be a fascist for the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah. Like Griffin is a dedicated political activist, whereas Robinson is a grifter who is profiting from producing racist content. And Upon his um, upon his upon being sent to jail, um, we need to probably need to talk about this absolutely fucking lunatic video that he released um, while he was inside, um, in which his rhetoric has has taken a very sharp turn. He's calling for a revolution, um, uh, kind of a much harder, more violent kind of content to his to his words. He says we need to spark a fire that will rage for years to come uh, be that spark which is it's not dissimilar for something you get in like uh, al-qaeda's inspire magazine you know right like uh, it's this kind of like kind of really kind of stochastic way stochastic terrorist way of talking um which is a, a pretty new from him even when he was flirting with generation identity uh, what what kind of effect do you think this um this kind of more extremist turn uh will have well you know there's that whole thing about radicalization where as things get more and more niche, they become more and more extreme. Right. It kind of feels like that's what's happening to Yaxley, well, Robinson and his uh, his supporters. It's like they're becoming more and more violent and more extreme politically while they're shrinking. Because, um, yeah, he, he had this, like, sort of, this huge social media presence. He's now got a Telegram channel. Right, and it's uh, got about, I mean, it's a big Telegram channel, it's got about 50k members on it, but that's, compared to the million or so he had on Facebook, it's nothing. Yeah, so it's now, his, like, support that he's engaged with it has been whittled down quite a lot by losing all of these social media channels. And it's and the rhetoric that he's using and that his, like, spokespeople are using is now much more extreme than it was like a couple of years ago. And that's because they're, they're catering to the hardcore, the ones who actually downloaded Telegram and had it on their phones in order to follow him. Yeah, and it's it's weird because you, you wouldn't think that him getting a short prison sentence is really escalating things for him. Like, he's a recidivist in mm -hmm. a number of ways. Um, and he's done a number of prison sentences. It's like doing a bit of time is something that he will have become accustomed to. So it's quite strange to see them really sort of escalating the rhetoric, talking about like by any means necessary and, and that kind of thing. When this is all like par for the course for what he's been doing for the past decade. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're kind of seeing this kind of sharing away of some of the others that are going to more peripheral support Lucy Brown in her latest video, who was a, a Tommy Confidant camerawoman, um, saying she wasn't going to, um, kind of, talk about free to the new, this new free Tommy movement because of this kind of martyr thing that's going on and she wasn't comfortable with the violence that we saw at the sentencing um, the sentence after the sentencing hearing um, and 
I feel like this is going to continue in in a lot of his soft a lot of the softer support around him is going to fall, start falling away. Yeah, it, it's difficult to work out where what's going to happen because it's like while he's lost his social media platforms um, and is stuck with this sort of small telegram channel he's still got supporters on social media with massive online followings it's like donald trump jr is a tommy robinson supporter um uh, netanyahu's son is also a donald trump supporter no, um, Tommy robinson supporter so he, he's got these supporters that have got huge like followings on social media and and they will mobilize people for him so it's like he, cause he's part of this network of like alt right figures with large social media followings, um, and you can imagine a scenario where these people help build a street movement for him, like mm-hmm. by agreeing to speak at rallies, by promoting them on their channels. It does also look like Tomo is not smart enough to make that happen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you you can imagine a a scenario where this network of alt-right figures helps to mobilise um, his supporters. Or it, or you could just end up with less than 50,000 people even hearing about these protests. Right. Well, so I guess we're going to see on the third, aren't we? Yeah, I I, I would expect there to be around 5,000 mm-hmm. like people on it max, like maybe a lot less than that. And and yeah, we, we will get a real sort of sense of how many people this sort of far right coalition that put 15,000 people on the streets last summer, like where that's now at. Like I think I would expect it to be small, uh, but I would expect it to potentially be more violent than last summer as well. So just talking about the third, um, there is going to be a counter mobilisation that's going to be a lot better than the one that happened in June. Um, it's been organised by a coalition of groups, including London Anti-Fascist Assembly, uh, London Anti-Fascist, the Anti-Fascist Network, uh, Plan C, um, and many other groups. Um, and if you want to find out more, you should follow their social media channels um, at LDN Anti-Fascist. Um, and you can find London Anti-Fascist Assembly very easily on Facebook and Twitter. Um, if you want to get involved, then send a message to their page, to their account, and see how you can help. And uh, as a podcast, we would say turn up on the third. Um, the main reason why this movement um, last year got got going in such a way was because it was ig- ignored and thought irrelevant by the majority of the left, and we can't allow that to happen again. It took a lot of work, a lot of concerted effort by a lot of anti-fascists to to start to start to rebuild some of our strength on the street, and we're in a better position than we were last year, um, but nothing we can't like kind of rest on our laurels right now so follow those accounts be there on the third in central london and look out for details online um and thank you for listening to this episode i hope you stuck through with it to the end it's really important for us to to understand the kind of political journey that tommy robinson has been on um and just start thinking about where this coalition that he kind of put together is going to go and go in the future so if you want to support the show I've been saying this quite a lot. Uh, you can follow us on Patreon and give us some money. You can follow us on Twitter um, and just retweet us, favour us, share us, share us on Facebook, Instagram, all your platforms. And thank you to James for a very informative episode. Yeah, thank you for having me on again. Boom. It's going down and you're invited for what they're selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding, 
There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they sell it. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast.